Hello, and welcome to the Terralex Insights Podcast, where our goal is to present multicultural perspectives by leading professionals. These perspectives on contemporary issues will help lawyers and business people work better together. I'm your host, Terry Pepper, Terralex's Chief Executive Officer. And I'm really excited today to chat with Jeff Carr, who I'll describe him. He's a race car driver, raconteur, rebel, and revolutionary in the legal industry. Before his current and I think it's third retirement, in which happened this past October, Jeff spent a very long and illustrious career in the legal industry in a whole bunch of capacities in what, as he likes to call them, the neighborhoods of Lawland. He was a federal law clerk, an associate in a big law firm, a solo practitioner, a general counsel, and then most recently with um, an ALSP or an alternative legal services provider law company. So we're gonna hear more about all of that in a minute. I'm actually currently co-chairing a conference with Jeff and another colleague, and I am entranced by his philosophy and approach to just about everything. So it made it a little difficult to narrow down the topics for this podcast, but let's go. We'll give it a try. And I think we'll start, Jeff, with a little bit of your origin story. So how did you get to be you? <laughs> well, Terry, it's a long and winding, tortuous path. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, Gosh, I mean, if you go way, way back, turn the Wayback Machine way, way back, I grew up in Dover, Delaware, um, and a small business family. We had an auto body shop that I started working in when I was about 10 years old, furniture making shop that I worked in as well. Um, and from there, kind of my love of cars comes from. Um, and uh, uh, then I, I, when I went to to college, I was supposed to go to Annapolis. It was a great disappointment to my family, my father's side of the family, which was a naval family. Um, supposed to go to Annapolis, didn't want to be an engineer, so I ended up uh, going to University of Virginia, where I started out as, of all things, a music major, um, and uh, played the piano and whatnot. And about two years in, I, I, I came to the conclusion, you know, I'm never going to make any money at this. I'm never going to be able to support myself. Um, and so I, I switched majors and into a similarly esoteric and useless major. I studied nuclear war theory, believe it or My not. My goodness. Um, and, you know, I, as I got out of college, I was thinking, you know, boy, I'm never going to use this. Um, and it's funny that right now, all of a sudden, that training um, and intellectual um, pursuits are all now strangely relevant in, in yeah. today's world. But I went to law school um, and, um, and, got, and was in a joint degree program at Georgetown for international affairs, came out of that. I actually worked for a big firm first um, okay. because I kind of graduated half year um, because of the joint degree program. Um, then I went to a federal clerkship, which was an interesting way to do it, having worked in the real legal world for a little while, then a clerkship. Then I came back to big law, um, where I practiced international trade law um, and did anti-subsidy, anti-dumping, customs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and then I had a great, well, at the time, a horrible experience. But about five years in, we, we were, I was part of a group that was at a DC office of a New York firm. Five years in, partner walks into my office and says, hey, Jeff, you know, got to tell you that, um, you know, we're an up and out firm and our group can only make two partners or one partner out of our group. There are two of you in the class. You're not going to be a partner at the firm. Um, that was devastating, as, as you can imagine. You, know, you go through one of those careers that, that you, you've always done things well, um, and that was a failure. I thought, well, screw this. I hate the law. Um, and um, 
uh, and so in a fit of idiocy um, with two other guys, we formed a international consulting and investment banking firm. Um, we helped to privatize the Brazilian steel industry. Uh, we imported beer from, um, from uh, Czechoslovakia, what was then Czechoslovakia. We had offices in Rio, Manila, um, Moscow, DC, um, and um, where else? It was in Owen, Prague. Um, my father was convinced I was in the CIA during those years because who in the world would have, um, have businesses there? What I learned during that five-year period, well, first I learned a lot about business. I learned about hiring people, firing people. I learned about revenue and costs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I really learned was that at my core, I'm a lawyer um, and I didn't hate the practice of law. I hated the business of law. Um, even what it was back then. And that was back in the 1980s, early 1990s. 93, I went in-house with what was then FMC Corporation. Um, found that that was fascinating because outhouse was, I thought in-house was different. Okay. In-house was just like outhouse. Um, you know, there was the only difference was we didn't bill hours, but it was still similarly inefficient. It was siloed. It was just bizarre. It didn't leverage knowledge. I thought it was strange. Um, and so that kind of started me down this whole path of how do you start optimizing things? How do you leverage things? Because I'm fundamentally a lazy person. Um, I did that for, gosh, I was with FMC for a long time. Um, we split the company in half in 2000 um, and I became the general counsel of the spinoff, uh, which was called FMC Technologies. And I was in the GC chair for 14 years there, which is a long, long time um, for, to be a GC. Um, served under three different CEOs, um, built uh, really with, with the help of some other people, an incredible legal team, one that punched way above its weight, uh, was recognized by an awful lot of people for doing things differently and in, a, in an innovative way. Um, I'd accomplished what I could accomplish there. And so I retired in 2014. Um, that didn't That's last. Number one. <laughs> That's number one. Um, then I made the mistake of answering the telephone. Um, and it was a, a guy who was a board member at FMC Technologies. He was also a board member now at, at Univar. And he asked me if I would come and talk to them um, because they'd lost their GC. I said, no, and you guys don't want me. I'm an old white guy. You don't want me. Um, you know, you want somebody younger who's got more runway for you. Um, and uh, he said, well, you know, he used the worst phrase possible. He said, well, as a favor to me, will you come talk to them? So I did. I told the CEO at the time, you don't want to hire me. You know, I mean, I'd be happy to help you. Be happy to help find you a GC. I'd be happy to mentor a GC. But, you know, I don't want... I, I, even if I took the job, I couldn't give you more. I wouldn't give you more than a couple of years, maybe three. And you need something longer than that. They made it hard to say no. Um, and um, so I, I, I went back in house with Univar. And mostly because what I, what I, the challenge that I personally wanted to address was what could what we built at FMC Technologies in about a dozen years could it be replicated? Could it be repeated? You know, had we built, were we lucky? Or were we, had we, were we really sort of on to something on, on the way you did things? Um, and so basically that's what I tried to do at Univar. Um, and uh, my commitment to them was three years, you know, less if I get it done earlier, more if it takes longer time. Um, and uh, in that time period, we decided to go buy a major company 
Um, and, and that was the focus of my work at Unimar. So I, I started them on the path to building a legal team. Um, in fact, we, we hired a whole new legal team, but I really didn't finish the work that I wanted to do there, um, but it was still time for me to leave. Um, and so retired from there. Um, that's two. Um, and then after about a year, I went into Elevate um, to, um, to, to basically, well, I, the title I wanted was Sensei Provocateur. Um, <laughs> the title I got was Continuous Improvement Evangelist. Um, and it was really to, to try to help them understand how they could adopt and build a continuous improvement culture. Um, did that for, for a while for them. Um, and uh, then they had a restructuring of the whole group that I was in. Um, uh, they, they left and got reassigned. Um, and at that point, what I was really interested in was healthcare insurance for my, for my wife, which I got through Elevate. And then I could continue to get through COBRA until she and I were both 65, which we are now. And so I, you know, it was, a, uh, so that's, that's the third retirement. I've been doing a little teaching since then. I did, uh, but the teaching's all been unusual online stuff. Um, I, I did some work with Passport to Practice, um, with uh, Law Without Walls, um, along with the, the CFO of Univar. We did uh, a whole series of courses for IFLIP, the Institute for the Future of the Legal Practice, Legal Profession. Um, and then I recently just taught, taught an online course at Southern University Law Center, all about but nothing to do about law, substantive law, all about delivery of legal service, which is what I'm passionate about. Um, right. that, that and race car driving. I mean, you know, yeah. what I tell people now is I, I don't tell them I'm retired because that's just boring and nobody wants to hear about what you used to do. Uh, I tell them that I'm a race car driver and they look at me because I'm old and I'm big and they say, you know, you race cars. So yeah, I race. I, I say, no, no, you, you own cars. So, well, yeah, I own cars, but I race them too. You race cars, okay. yeah. Um, and then they invariably ask, well, is there any money in that? And oh yeah, there's lots of money in that, but unfortunately it's all going out. None of it's coming in. Um, so, and what's really funny uh, or strange anyway, is um, my focus on racing is very similar to my passion about the legal industry. I mean, there, there are a lot of parallels. Uh, this will sound strange, but there are a lot of parallels to being a race car driver and being a lawyer, being a fighter pilot, being a deep sea diver. I mean, these are all things that are their individual uh, con contributor type roles, um, but there's some danger involved, there's technology involved, there's procedure involved, there's some structure, uh, there's some adrenaline associated with the danger, but it's all managed risk. Um, the thing that's different between law and all those other things is, you know, if you have to leverage your team to succeed and you have to leverage process uh, to, to live, because um, if you don't, if you're racing a car, if you're fly flying a plane and you don't do those things, you end up at best destroying a very expensive piece of equipment and at worst, either hurting yourself or dying. It's funny to me that the legal industry even though it's populated by the same kind of personality types, doesn't embrace that same process discipline, yeah. particularly doesn't embrace the after action, the debriefing discipline. Um, so, you know, I approach racing the same way I approach delivering legal services, which is probably why I still 
am involved in both. So yeah. that's what well, I think if you if you don't do everything right in as a lawyer, then you just get rewarded anyway. So I guess well, the incentives are a little anyway. different. And 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 frankly, I mean, so if you're a fighter pilot, as an example, um, I suppose you want more missions to fly, but because there's such an inherent danger in it, you really don't, you know, you really don't want a war. If you're a lawyer, particularly a litigator, you you actually need problems to resolve. Um, so the concept of continuous improvement, yeah, it. it some people do it, but it has limits because, you know, the limit may be, okay, I might, I might want to be a more effective litigator. But if, if you're actually the customer, somebody like me in-house, you actually don't want to need a litigator. That's, that's right. the, you know, so, so, you know, I want you to tell me how to make my company be a better behavior so that we don't have these disputes that you have to handle. Some people, you know, a, that's the bridge too far for them. And B, if they really think about it, it's counterproductive from a business standpoint for them. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't come from that culture. I come from a culture that says, you know, disputes are bad things, they're not good things. And, and we should figure ways to avoid them at the front end, if we're in them, because they are inevitable, um, to, uh, prosecute, resolve them as effectively and as efficiently as possible. But then when that's done, learn from it. So it goes into that continuous circle thing of back to avoidance. And, and the, the better you get, uh, it's great to optimize your processes. It's better to not need the processes at all. Um, and that's the way we okay. built the, the, the legal team. Um, our, our mantra was, um, uh, every legal problem can be avoided. Um, kind of like a safety culture, I guess, is probably the best way to think about it. And, um, and that's the way we lived. So, you know, it's, it's, um, that, that was the focus of the team. And, and we recruited people that shared that philosophy more than anything else. Well, I, you know, as we were talking about this just the other day when we were on a call about the conference we're co-chairing that I've known you a really long time, actually. We, we yeah. were on a panel together many years ago, and I've always uh, appreciated that you call it like it is. You're a straight shooter. <laughs> so let's let's take that kind of straight shooter approach. What would you change both about in-house and outside counsel if you could, based on the things that you implemented at, in your role? Um the fundamental change is a change in focus. And, and the change in focus is to one of delivered value. Um, and, and I define delivered value as effectiveness, efficiency, and experience. Uh, and let me unpack those a little bit. Effectiveness means understanding what, what is the purpose of this engagement? What's the purpose of this project? Start with why, you know, why, why are we doing this at all? Um, and, and so effectiveness is based on, okay, you know, understanding what the customer's objective is. Did you meet it or not? Did we, did we achieve that goal? Whatever it may be it means up front, we have to agree on that goal and that it's a realistic goal. The second element efficiency is, um, do we do it with the least possible resources, um, and in the most efficient way? Um, if you're in a Bill Lauer kind of model, um, could, did we, did we do it as efficiently as possible? Did we reduce the number of hours as much as possible? If you're in a fixed cost, um, process, it's, it's really more on the supplier side. 
was the supplier, did they use their resources in the most effective way um, in order to achieve the objective? Experience is the one that's most interesting um, because I don't mean that you were a Supreme Court clerk <laughs> or, or that you've hun- handled a hundred of these things. That's the way most lawyers think about experience. They think, oh, well, my experience. No, no, I'm talking about my experience as a customer. <laughs> what was my experience as a customer with the service provider as a service provider? Um, because you could be effective, you could be efficient, but if you're a pain in the butt to deal with, I'm probably not going to use you again. Um, it, it, it really kind of comes down to communication and understanding objectives, um, the, the way people are treated one, one way or another. Um, you can throw a DEI component in here as, as, as well, you know, as, if, that's, if that's a driver for you. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the softer set of, of the, the relationship. But I mean, how many law firms do you know that use things like a net promoter score? I mean, they- Carol X does. <laughs> yeah, and and it's um, institution, but not, uh, I don't know about our members, but we do. Yeah, and but you know, but not a lot do, right. um, and not a lot do structured feedback. Not, I mean, basic tools in business. You know, the uh, so there's Lawland, and Lawland is a is a is a nation state with, within a greater community called the real world. Lawland's made up of a lot of different neighborhoods, as as you, you mentioned at the front end. Lawland is really amazing to me. In, in its complete, not complete, I'm, I'm prone to being hyperbolic, um, but it's, it's disdain for customer feedback. Yeah, so I think Lawland is really notorious for um, failure to recognize the customer needs and the customer feedback. Um, one of the things we did in my team as an example is we banned the use of the word client. Um, we only use the word customer. Um, and, and that's because if you adopt that as a, as a, as a discipline, there's a subtle change that happens to you as a service provider, because if you start referring to the people you're working with as customers, you, you automatically empathize with them and you automatically start thinking about, well, would it, would this give me value? If I were the customer, is this the way I'd want to be treated? Um, is this the way I'd want to be billed? Would I think this is a good value for what I'm being billed? Um, and so it just, that subtle change changes the mindset of, of the service provider. Um, I mean, I, look, I'm all for the attorney-client privilege and all that kind of stuff, but that's literally the only place that I will use the word client is when I'm specifically talking about privilege. Um, I, not too many people do that, you know, and, and, and Lawland, for whatever reason, thinks it's special and different, and it's not. Um, it, it, it just isn't. And, and besides, it, it, it only exists to serve its customers. Now, granted, one of the customers is the role of law and society in general. Um, that's broader than the individual customer, but you know, it's still there, it's a customer focus. I think a lot of um, the providers and the practitioners in law land have lost sight of that. And I think we've kind of lost our way. So I worry about the profession. Um, and and even, even though I'm a grenade thrower and I'm a, a, a critic of it, it comes out of a place of love for it and, and deep respect for it because I, I want the profession uh, to be sustainable, to be relevant. But I see the behavior of many practitioners as, as being on kind of this death spiral to irrelevancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the way I've just run my professional life for the last 30 years or so. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I have to comment that when you talk about law land and the neighborhoods, it's starting to sound like the metaverse to me. Like it's perfectly <laughs> positioned to be a place in the metaverse. So we'll have to keep that in mind for next conference we do. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I know when you talk about the experience being such an important part of it, and I know one of the things that you live and die by is after action reviews. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about how they played out when you were in-house, but I hope you'll share how they played out in your retirement life too, because I kind of love this. <laughs> well, it'll even go further back. Where did I first learn about, um, about after actions? Um, and it, it, and this will be kind of bizarre, but it, it comes from when I was very, very young. I, I, one of the things I, I often start discussions and speeches uh, by um, saying, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an ex. Um, and, and one of those statements is, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a lifeguard. And I, I was a lifeguard. That's actually the way I met my wife um, back in 1974, believe it or not. Um, and one of the things I learned as a lifeguard is, um, you know, first, it's, it's a heroic uh, job. And, you know, you go in the water, you save somebody, you're a hero. The whole objective of being a lifeguard is never to go in the water. You have failed if you've gone in the water. If you actually have to get wet to save somebody, you know, that's a failure on a whole lot of levels. I think I was a lifeguard for three years. I think I went in the water twice. It's exhilarating. Now, I blew my whistle a lot, you know, and, and the, the, the whistle for a lifeguard is, is a prevention device. It's to stop engaging in whatever behavior you are engaged in because something bad is going to happen. And my job is to keep something bad from happening to you. If it happens, I'm going to save you. But I would rather not have to do that. That's where I first learned about prevention. Where I first learned about after actions was when I went in-house. Um, and it was with FMC Corp, which was a big, um, at that time, it was a very diversified company. It had a lot of different products ranging from energy to defense to chemicals to gold, um, all kinds of things. Um, but one of the, th it had a very strong safety culture. And one of the things that happened all the time was whenever there was an incident, um, it was to do an after action uh, to, and to understand how did this happen so we can prevent it from happening again. Because we lived with what we called destination zero, which was we wanted no accidents, no injuries to any of our people or to not our people, the community at large. Um, so I learned it there and I started thinking about, well, why doesn't this apply to law? Why don't we apply that same discipline? Um, I went to a corporate training event by something called the Afterburners, uh, which is a group of fighter pilots that do corporate training. And they teach a method, um, it's called their perfect execution model and it's um, brief, execute, debrief. Um, and in the debrief side, it's a, it's a structured after action um, and, and about how to do an after action. So the next day that you do the mission, it may be exactly the same mission, but you do it better the next day. It's a continuous improvement model. When I became a managing attorney inside, I realized I had zero experience in management. Um, 
no one teaches law students or young lawyers how to manage people or projects. I mean, it's just a complete lack. It's better now. There's a, there's a little bit more training. But back then, because I'm an old guy, back then, um, it just didn't happen. And, and yet my world was I had to be able to perform and I did not have the skills to do that. Um, so I started listening to something called Manager Tools, which was, a, 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 back then it was on CDs that came every once in a while. Now it's a podcast. And it was designed for people in companies that were taking their first management position. They'd been, you know, they'd been a, a whatever, you know, a technician or a whatever, and now they're going to manage people. And they didn't know how to do that. Um, and I started listening to that. One of the sessions was on something called a hot wash. Uh, which is a fast track after action. Um, basically, it's not a problem solving session. It's just to say, okay, we just finished X, this meeting, this, this project or whatever. We're just going to take five minutes and talk about what went well and what are the things we need to take a look at, W3s and TALAs. Um, I adopted that discipline with our team where at the end of every meeting, at the, we had a hot wash. Um, we started doing that then with our customers or the people in the company. You know, when, when we were done with something, we would do a hot wash. My CEO saw me do that once with the team. He asked me to do it with our board. Um, and it became part of the company's culture. When I went to Univar, we started doing the same, same thing. It's after actions are the most powerful yet least used tool in, in our box of tools as, as lawyers. And I don't understand why we don't use it because it, it is the key to continuous improvement. It really is. It's, it's the third step. I, Terry, you and I've been together enough. You know that I, I love three letter acronyms. You know, I organize the world in three points. Um, and one of my favorites is, is P3, which is plan, perform, perfect. It's my my iteration and expansion on the afterburners model of, of brief debrief or brief execute debrief. It's, it's the same kind of methodology. And the perfection stage is the closeout stage. And an integral part of the perfection stage is an after action. Most of the time you do an after action, what you determine as a root cause is that you didn't is that your plan was either non-existent or ineffective. Um, and so it highlights the importance of planning. Planning is the most important step in any project. Perfection is the way you realize that and get there. Um, and so that, that whole approach really defines the way I ran my professional career. I, I race that way. I mean, you know, before I, before I go out on the track, I go through a plan. I mean, you know, the car has to be prepped. Everybody has to know what they're doing. I, I've looked at a trap, track map, I've walked the track, I understand where my runoff points are, I know who's on the grid with me, I know how they race most of the time. Um, so I'm planning every possible thing that I can, I, what I'm trying to do is reduce the unknowns, the mm -hmm. unknowable unknowns, trying to put them into known unknowns. You know, I don't know if it's going to happen, but if it does happen, this is the way I'm going to react to it. Because then that gives me bandwidth to deal with things that are unknowable, unknown, something that we didn't anticipate. And if you continue to do that process, you're reducing that scope of the unknowable unknowns. Um, and I think that's, 
that's the highest and best use of a legal function when we come right down to it is prevention. So it's, it's, it's not being great at, at solving legal problems. It's being fantastic yeah. at not having legal problems. Now, I mean, you have, everybody has legal issues. I don't mean, and there's a difference between issues and problems. On the issue side, we should handle those optimally. Um, even on the problem side, we should handle them optimally. But what you really wanna do is you wanna reduce the demand associated with problems. That frees up your bandwidth to do more work. So I talk about it in terms of the waves of change in legal and that fourth stage is doing less with less resources, less law, fewer resources, more prevention. So that's, that's kind of in the question, You might hate this question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, I know when I used to run a legal project management program, I struggled with the after action review piece of it because the project was done, the client was going to pay their bill, and the lawyers, it was unbilled time. It was you know, an investment time that a lot of people were, had moved on to the next, and it was always a struggle to get that piece. Will clients pay for, for a law firm, for the, the partners in a law firm that worked on their project to do an after action? In my world, you don't only pay for it, you require it. That's great. Um, and, um, but you also have to understand that in my world, it's, this isn't something extra that you build for. This is, this is part of the budget for the project. I mean, yeah. we, at the planning stage, when we plan the project and part of the plan was the budget, it's an all-in budget. And, and the way we compensated people reflected that part of, part of our formula was measuring efficiency. The budget said X, unless there was some reason to, you know, and what I want to know is, as the customer is, are we good to budget or bad to budget? If we're good to budget, do I get to keep that money? If we're bad to budget, how are we going to get back? If, if doing an after action is going to make us go over budget, I understand that, but you're going to help fund it. Right. <laughs> so um, it's, um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to to discipline and, and investing in things that are important. After actions are important They're, and and they should be important to legal service providers. They should be, but I don't think they are. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I love this message and I, I hope people really hear it and it resonates. And just to drive the point home and as we're coming to the end of our time, you, you just have to share how you've implemented this in your retirement life. I don't know if it was retirement one, two or current, but so, I love it. It goes back to my first retirement. Um, somebody that I respected and liked a lot, a guy who used to be the CFO at, uh, at FOC Technologies, he retired a little bit before me, maybe a year or so. And he said, look, you know, it, it, you get bored in retirement and, 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 and yet the time just flies. You know, you don't know where the day went. You don't know how you could ever work. Um, he said, you, you gotta do three things every day. You have to do something social, something mental and something physical. So. I added two other things. I added something creative because I have a creative side and spiritual. However you define that, I, mean, I think it taking some time and reflecting. So in my first retirement, I'm so damn anal that I actually, you know, I, I, I knew I hate exercise. I mean, I truly hate exercise. I'm pretty introverted. So the social stuff is, is, is hard for me. Um, to hold myself accountable and make sure I did those things, I created a spreadsheet and I tracked it. Every day I tracked it. Um, and at the end of the day, I did an after action. How did I do today? How did I do on, did I do all five of those things? 
was I, was, did I leverage them? You know, did I do something that actually ticked off two boxes at the same time? What can I do tomorrow to be better? Um, and I kept track of that. And, um, and, and in fact, I, I had a, a friend that was doing um, the same thing with me, actually, our, our co-chair. Um, and, and we would meet on a, we'd have a drink together on a weekly basis. Um, and we would talk about, you know, did, how did we do? And what were the lessons learned? Uh, he was my accountability buddy in, in that regard. Um, I, I'm not as anal now because, um, because now it's a habit. Now, yeah. now I, I, don't, I don't have to keep track of doing those five things. I just do those five things. Um, and I mean, sometimes I just sit back and, and think about, okay, um, can, I, can I do any of them better? I'm just not as structured in it now. But yeah, I mean, I, I run my personal life the same way I run, ran my professional life. It's easier for me that way. I don't have to think about as many things. Um, I mean, one of my favorite sayings um, one is, you, I think you've heard me say this before, is, is before you open your mouth, before you write something down, you ask yourself three questions. Does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me now? I tell you, those three things, that is the epitome of legal advice and relationship advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, wow, so that's a great place to actually uh, come to the end here. Thank you so much. As a reminder to the listeners, we've been talking to Jeff Carr, who is, oh, your last name fits so perfectly. It just dawned on me as I said Carr. <laughs> Jeff Carr, who is a race car driver and raconteur and a rebel and revolutionary in the legal industry. And even though you're retired, I'm glad that you're, you're not giving up on their participation. And I'm really enjoying our chance to co-chair this conference with our friend, Pat. So thank you so much for joining us. You've all been listening to Terralex's Insights Podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode.